like to give a short talk today. Um, and Dharma talks are always about practice. And um, we'll talk for about 10 or 15 minutes, and we might have time for one or two questions. And then we'll sit for about five minutes and then finish as we normally do. I wanted to say a few words today about the student-teacher relationship in, in Zen. Um, when you think of the Buddhist tradition, we can think in terms of Tibetan Buddhism, the, the tradition that comes from Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka, Burma, the, what's often referred to as the insight tradition, and the, and the Zen tradition, uh, which comes to us from China via Japan to the West. Probably one of the unique things about Zen <clears throat> is the centrality it places on the relationship between the teacher and the student. And uh, given the fact that Zen arose in Chinese culture, uh, Chinese culture placed a, a great deal of importance on ancestry and lineage. And the, the various lineages in the Zen tradition all uh, trace themselves back to the original Sakyamuni Buddha 2,500 years ago. So there's a sense in which you have this ongoing passing on down of the Buddha mind or the transmission from one generation to the next. And um, so we know from historical studies that um, partly this is a, uh, a construction. Um, there is, uh, but um, so. Um, when the lineage is recited in the Zen traditions, they start with the, the sort of mythological Buddhas before Sakyamuni Buddha, then they go from Sakyamuni Buddha right down through various Indian ancestors, which traces right back down to this guy called Bodhidharma, who came from India to China. And it was from Bodhidharma that uh, the Zen tradition arose and uh, so all um, Zen teachers trace the lineage back to Bodhidharma. He was the guy who arrived at established the Shaolin Monastery and uh, sat facing the wall for a number of years and until one of his students plaintively uh, stood outside in the snow and uh, finally cut off his arm to uh, demonstrate to Bodhidharma how committed he was to uh, the teaching. So Bodhidharma finally took him on as a student. He became the second, what's called the second patriarch. And um, so there's six patriarchs in, in Zen. And um, so just saying uh, to personalize this a little bit, um, I first started sitting uh, Zazen practice in 1998. And um, for, for quite a few years, I, I sat with uh, the Zen Center in Sydney. I did spend some time sitting in the uh, Insight, the Burmese Insight tradition in the Blue Mountains, and uh, 
Then I sat in the uh, what's called the Diamond Sangha tradition in Sydney and in Adelaide. Um, I never really settled down to a teacher, and this is fairly uh, common that uh, when we start um, our meditation practice, we, we don't necessarily uh, form a relationship with a teacher for a while. And um, so it really wasn't until um, the early, uh, is it um, 2003 or something like that, that I started to um, actually form a teacher-student relationship with Barry Majid, who was my teacher. And, um, and Barry's teacher was uh, uh, Joko Beck. And so Barry's my, my father in the Dharma and Joko's my grandmother in the Dharma, um, in terms of my lineage. Um, and when I came down to Bellingen about eight years ago, I also established uh, most most teachers and teachers usually usually you only work with one teacher. Um, it's the same if you were in, in, if you were doing psychotherapy, you would normally only work with one psychotherapist. It does complicate matters if you're working with more than one person. So normally in the Zen tradition, you only work with one teacher. Um, I know, and every teacher is going to be different. I mean, uh, they're going to have a different. Their teacher was different. Their traditions are often slightly different, and their personalities are different. And so they express the dharma uniquely. Each each teacher expresses the dharma uniquely. And the finding an affinity, you know, a sense of connection with a Zen teacher is the same as with if you're looking for a therapist. There's got to be some sort of connection, some matching there. But um, Barry was quite, he's quite a flexible guy, and so when I arrived in Bellingham, because Barry lives in New York, and I couldn't see him, you know, face to face very often, I'd sometimes visit him in New York, but we did a lot of email communication, we did some Skype communication. Uh, but he, he was certainly always available for me. Um, and, um, but um, I started to work with uh, a teacher in Bellingham in the Diamond Sangha tradition called Sexton Berg. And, um, and uh, I really uh, appreciated and loved Sexton very much. And, and when Sexton passed away about four years ago now, um, he suggested, because we had a little, we still have, there's a Zen group in Bellingham. Um, he suggested that um, another teacher from the Diamond Sangha called Ellen Davison, who lives in Lismore, uh, take his place and come down. So then I started working with Ellen uh, with, with Barry's approval. So. Barry was kind of like what's called my root teacher or my primary teacher. And, uh, but Ellen also, I worked with Ellen as well. Um, in the Zen tradition, uh, there used to be about six schools of Zen in ancient China, but um, over time it gradually reduced to two schools of Zen, one called Soto Zen, one called Rinzai Zen. And uh, in both those schools of Zen, the teacher-student relationship is very important. And um, but in the uh, when when Zen was uh, came to the West, um, apart from people like Suzuki and, and, and a couple of other teachers, back in, in about the in the in about the sixties, one of the most influential Chinese teachers was a, uh, Japanese teachers was a guy called Yatsutani. Yatsutani's teacher was Harada, and 
they actually had, uh, Harada had transmission in both the Soto and the Rinzai schools. So he developed a, a Zen practice which actually integrated both the Soto and the Zen traditions. The Soto tradition does what's uh, basically they do a sitting practice called Shikantaza, which is just sitting. And they put a lot of emphasis on mindfulness. And um, the Rinzai tradition has this thing called koan, you know, the koans in Zen Buddhism. And um, koans in the, in the Rinzai tradition are used as part of the meditation realization process. And that's also where the, you, you see the teacher and you work on a koan. Anyway, when this tradition was transplanted to the West, uh, it, was, it was quite influential and quite popular. One of the uh, biggest books in the West in the 1960s was a book called The Three Pillars of Zen. And um, that was based on that tradition. The, um, a guy called uh, Aiken Roshi, uh, Robert Aiken, who was based in Hawaii, uh, was trained in that tradition. And he, he brought that tradition to the Sydney Zen Centre, which is where Zen in Australia basically started. And um, so the, what's called the Diamond Sangha was established by Aiken Roshi. So the Sydney Zen Centre is Diamond Sangha. And they integrate both uh, a sitting practice where you don't have to work on a koan, but they also have the koans as a very central part of their tradition. The process of becoming a teacher in that tradition is to work through various books of koans. It takes quite a long time, and eventually you get approved to become a, uh, the first stage of teaching, which is where I'm at. It's called the, the Denkai transmission. It's kind of like like an apprentice teacher still under the supervision of your primary teacher. And um, Joko um, was trained in that tradition. And um, however, she, when she um, established her own center in San Diego uh, in the early 1980s, she actually um, felt that um, the Koan um, tradition um, had some problems to it. And I won't go into that, but um, basically, she dropped the Koan tradition and um, taught a very down-to-earth Zen, which was very grounded in everyday Western lives. And I'll just read a, a paragraph. I really recommend this book, Everyday Zen, um, which was her first book, which was published in 1989. And I'll just read the first paragraph from the preface. Um, the preface was written by a guy called Steve Smith in 1988. Successful living means functioning well in love and work, declared Sigmund Freud. Yet most Zen teaching derives from a monastic tradition that is far removed from the ordinary world of romantic and sexual love, family and home life, ordinary jobs and careers. Few Western students of Zen live apart in traditionally structured monastic communities. Most are preoccupied with the same tasks as everyone else, creating or dissolving a relationship changing diapers, negotiating a mortgage, seeking a job promotion. But the Zen centers that serve such students often retain an aura of esoteric specialness and separateness. Black robes, shaved heads, and traditional monastic rituals may reinforce the impression of Zen 
as an exotic alternative to ordinary life, rather than ordinary life itself lived more fully. Because the images and experiences of classical Zen arose out of monasticism, classically trained teachers of Zen are not always able to speak to the actual life issues of the 20th century or 21st century Western students. They may unwittingly encourage an escapist response to those issues, a retreat from problems of real life under the guise of seeking special, overwhelming um, experiences. If Zen is to become integrated into Western culture, it requires a Western idiom. Chop wood, carry water, must somehow become, make love, drive freeway. So Zen, uh, taught by Joko Beck, resonated with a lot of people because she's taught in a very down-to-earth, practical way. And she talked to and encouraged students to bring to, the, to their practice what she called the commands of everyday life whether that be a relationship issue, whether that be a job-based issue, and so on. And to, to bring our practice and our uh, reflection on our practice in Zen to those issues. So the teacher-student relationship, like, um, it's quite unique in Zen. Um, I have a high regard for the secular mindfulness, which is very uh, big now in the West, whether it might be mindfulness-based stress reduction as established by John Kabat-Zinn, or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, or mindful self-compassion practice. These are all very worthwhile and uh, I would highly recommend them. Courses that people can attend. Um, and the instructors in those courses are meant to have established their own mindfulness practice. And, um, but the, there is not a specific long-term relationship between the student and the teacher. Similarly, in the insight tradition, which comes from Sri Lanka and Burma and, and Thailand, they tend to place more em emphasis on the teaching and not so much on the student-teacher relationship. So you'll have teachers in that tradition, but the actual um, the teaching relies more upon the student following the instructions from the, uh, the teachings. So this, this very close, personal and intimate relationship is very unique in Zen. And probably one of the reasons why people like Barry, who's a psychoanalyst in New York, was attracted to it. Because it's not, a, it's not a, um, something that one should take on lightly. It's, um, it can be a lifetime commitment. Um, so the, that, that, that relationship can go on for years. And... Um, so it's not it's it's something that needs a lot of consideration uh, before embarking on that. And the uh, part of the training comes from that that relationship. And um, so when a, a student goes on a Zen, what's called a session or a retreat, or if you're fortunate enough to have a local teacher, it's often the case where the student would go for interviews. So. An interview on a, on a formal retreat often is only for a couple of minutes, depending on the number of people on the retreat. Sometimes uh, if uh, the course of, a, say, a weekly meeting or a fortnightly meeting, it might go for longer, maybe 15 minutes, maybe sometimes longer, where some other issues can be discussed in, that, in, the, in, the, in the meeting. Um, and um, so... Um, in 
a lot of Zen centers, there's um, a commitment to become a student of the teacher. Uh, that's not the case here. And so like some of the people who attend here will already have a teacher, and that's perfectly fine by me. Um, other people may not have a teacher, and you might be, that's fine too. Because the bottom line is we're all teachers, and we're all students, and we never stop being students and teachers. And um, but I think the uh, what we call in Zen the transmission uh, when someone becomes a teacher. What I like about the Zen tradition is there's a certain accountability that goes with that. So there's a kind of supervision process which goes with it. And uh, and unfortunately, even very experienced teachers um, have crossed boundaries. And in the West, there's been a number of scandals around. Uh, uh, transgressions in terms of sexual transgression, uh, uh, in terms of fairly um, inappropriate uh, 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 you know, addiction to alcohol. And um, so this, what, this makes it very important that the teacher also be accountable to the, to the Sangha. So I guess at this point in time, the Sangha, which is the, the friends which practice together and support each other in practice, we're at, the, we're at that point of trying to establish a Sangha here in the ordinary mind tradition. So, um, some time for one or two questions, isn't there? Do you, do you have a question on that? Anything about what I've been talking about? Okay. Well, I'll just leave it at that and we'll just sit for five minutes.